This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Inmates who are mentally ill spend months, even years, in solitary confinement at a federal prison in Florence, Colorado. That's in the southern part of the state. A new report from the Justice Department finds the Bureau of Prisons nationally relies too heavily on isolation, even though it claims not to use the practice at all. Inspector General Michael Horowitz is with us from Washington, D.C. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Good to be here. Could you give us an example of an inmate at that supermax federal prison in Florence, an inmate who falls into this category, you know, someone who is mentally ill and has spent, in your view, too much time in solitary? Well, one of the examples that we saw was an inmate who we found spent 19 years, um, had been designated with serious mental illness, yet spent 19 years um, at the Supermax prison in restricted housing uh, before being transferred in 2014 to a mental health treatment program. And that obviously was concerning to us. We saw other examples at ADX, uh, at the Supermax prison, uh, as well as other federal prisons around the country. Yeah, you'll hear this term ADX, and that refers to this federal Supermax prison in Florence. So that inmate who had been in, as you call it, restricted housing for some 19 years, eventually got into Uh, I suppose, as you'd see it, a more appropriate housing situation. So it's not as if the Bureau of Prisons was unaware of the mental illness and of the fact that a different environment might be better, correct? Uh, That's correct. In fact, the BOP, the Bureau of Prisons, has mental health treatment programs um, throughout the federal uh, prison system. Um, And one of the significant concerns we had was uh, finding that they were um, there were significant wait lists to get into various programs, and the staffing levels weren't what they needed to be for those programs. All right. And that might explain why it took some 19 years for a more appropriate setting, that the wait lists are that long? Well, the wait lists are substantial, um, but one of the concerns we identified as we were doing work was the uh, BOP policy, the pure prison system policy at the time of our review, which was changed in 2014 and 2016 as we were doing our reviews, um, didn't limit the time amount, the amount of time that individual prisoners could be held in restricted housing, including inmates with mental illness. Are there limits then today? So there are limits for certain of the restricted housings. The supermax prison is not covered by that. Uh, uh, new policy, um, but the new limits in the res- in the restrictive housing units in um, different federal f- facilities is twenty four months. Twenty four months. Okay. Uh, I think it's really important to parse the language here a bit. So, layman like myself might refer to this as solitary confinement. That is a term that federal prisons and even state corrections really shy away from. They might use different terms like administrative segregation, uh, which seems to lose some of the punch of solitary confinement. You've used this term restricted housing. And there are various levels of isolation. I suppose we could refer to all of this as isolation. There are various levels of isolation at various federal prisons. But um, is, is it important to be making a distinction between these terms or or what? Is this just parsing words? Well, it was a concern to us about the parsing of words because, um, as you will hear from the Bureau of Prisons uh, on the federal level, that they say they don't use solitary confinement. Yet when we went to Supermax, 
Um, in addition to the example just mentioned, we saw two inmates who spent 22 hours a day in what appeared by all accounts to be solitary confinement. Um, and in fact, a psychologist at the prison um, referred to it as solitary confinement, even though the Bureau of Prisons insists uh, that they don't practice solitary confinement. So from our standpoint in looking at this issue, um, if you are going to uh, implement policies to deal with inmates, generally speaking, who are in these facilities and in this restrictive housing, in these um, uh, restricted units, limited units, um, you, you need to understand what is going on day to day as a, at a practical level um, and simply uh, de deciding that, well, we don't use do solitary confinement because we don't call it that isn't sufficient. Mm -hmm. And the psychologists that you spoke to, uh, you include this in the report, say in this setting, inmates have no contact. They don't speak to anybody. And it's a form of torture on some levels. Inmates do still talk to officers and stuff like that, but they don't really get a chance to see anybody. So, yes, I would say they are, in fact, in solitary confinement. I think we need to get to the more fundamental point here, which is the, the relationship, as much as you can say about it, between a mental health condition and isolation, whether isolation makes conditions worse. Well, the studies that we looked at uh, drew that conclusion. Um, but in addition, the BOP's own policy acknowledges that placing an inmate with mental illness in a restricted housing unit can exacerbate their mental health condition. And so there's not only the studies out there that say that, the Bureau of Prisons' own policy acknowledges that risk and that danger. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I am joined by Inspector General Michael Horowitz of the Department of Justice. Uh, he's author of a new report finding that the Bureau of Prisons nationally relies too heavily on isolation, uh, even though it claims not to use the practice of solitary confinement at all. And this touches in particular a supermax federal prison in Florence in southern Colorado. And I, I want to highlight a an important point you made a bit earlier, which is that the changes the Bureau of Prisons has made to its policy thus far do not actually cover Florence. That, that seems like an important distinction for Coloradans to know. That, that, that's correct. And that's one of the concerns we have, which is that um, while the new policy places a maximum amount of time, 24 months consecutively in a restrictive housing unit in another prison in the country, um, it doesn't um, stop the possibility that an inmate would spend some time in that facility, go to a different unit in a different prison that could have similar conditions of isolation, and then go back to a restrictive housing unit, particularly if they are designated as failing in their um, rehabilitation in that restricted housing unit. Because the individuals, just to be clear, who are going into these restrictive housing units are being put there because of uh, their actions in prison acting out, acting um, uh, in a dangerous way. And so the idea is you put them in a restricted housing unit to try and um, uh, bring them to a point where you can put them back with the general population. And I do want to have us put ourselves in the shoes of 
guards at these prisons, of wardens, if you will, because you say that this is an important tool for inmates that act out, act up. Uh, if you start to you limit the use of isolation, aren't you taking away an important tool? And that is a uh, very real concern for staff, correctional officers, and as we are focusing on and talking about Supermax, keep in mind that the inmates who are incarcerated there are precisely the ones who have a history of violent disruptive behavior Hmm. or are uh, threats of escape. And so that facility in particular is dealing with inmates who may present the most challenging uh, inmates for correction officers and staff to deal with. So you are not advocating by any means for the total eradication of this tool, but for a more um, nuanced use of it. What, what do you think are the factors driving the use of isolation? Does this have to do with staffing, the inability to hire workers? Well, it's a, a couple different things I think are going on. And you're right. We don't advocate one way or another for policy. That's not our Um, role. We are not part of management. That's up to the Justice Department to decide. But what we saw was um, the use of this um, tool um, for inmates who, in fact, can well be dangerous, but also a concern that the programs put in place to transition people out of these facilities, particularly those with mental illness, because that was the focus of the report. Indeed. Were, were not staffed sufficiently, did not have enough bed space. And so you end up in a situation where folks are on waiting lists to move to various programs, and that's very concerning. And the, the backlog, the backup, is in part what is informing this. But, but then I think to, to staffing levels just at the prisons themselves, not the special programs for those with mental illnesses, and if you if you don't have sufficient correctional officers there, I suppose as a way of keeping themselves safe and other prisoners safe, they're more likely to use isolation. Do you have some sense that this is related to staffing in prisons? Well, as a general matter, we have found repeatedly over the last several years that as a um, as a principle, as a, as a as a matter of numbers, the federal prisons are both overcapacity generally and understaffed generally. Um, Now, that'll vary prison by prison. But as a general matter, that's a challenge the Federal Federal Bureau of Prisons and the Justice Department is facing globally and is a very serious challenge in terms of budget. And just to bring a finer point to it, keep in mind that that's not for lack of resources being devoted to the Federal Bureau of Prisons over the last two decades. Oh. In fact, the Federal Bureau of Prisons' share of the Justice Department budget has grown from about 14 or 15 percent 20 years ago to fully a quarter of the department's budget today. So even though you're seeing substantial increases in the department's budget over the last 20 years to deal specifically with inmates, federal inmates we're talking about, um, the prisons have had continued to be getting more and more crowded until, I might add, the last year or two when that trend has started to change. Um, But that's been the big problem, is even with more and more resources devoted to the federal prison system, um, the staffing and 
inmate overcrowding has not been sufficiently abated. Which is not intuitive, of course. Um, is there just trouble hiring? Well, we've we've seen that as well, um, particularly in this area with health professionals generally, mental health professional professionals specifically. Uh-huh. The Federal Bureau of Prisons, for example, um, has only filled, as we note in our report, about fifty-seven percent of the vacancies for uh, of the positions for psycho- psychiatrists. Um, and that's highly problematic because, as we note in our report, as a result, non-psychiatrists, general medical practitioners, are the ones then having to make decisions about whether to um, prescribe um, drugs for these inmates who have mental health conditions. And so it has been a challenge, we've found, for the Federal Bureau of Prisons to get the, men- the health professionals, including the mental health professionals, they need um, to su- properly support the inmate population and the correctional officers who need that assistance. It's not the ideal work environment if you're trying to recruit people, I suppose. And in Colorado, especially where the economy is good and there are jobs available, I suppose they could uh, seek better environments and even maybe more pay. Uh, Michael, one last question. The, I, I, I want to note that the Bureau of Prisons has accepted all of the dozen or so recommendations that you made. That's a really important point. That's correct. What is the most important step they should take in about the last 30 seconds? I think the most important step is creating sufficient staffing to to help inmates with mental health and to have sufficient programs to transition them to the community. Because no matter what your view is of the law enforcement system, keep in mind that these inmates will fulfill their jail sentence And at the end of their sentence, the Bureau of Prisons has no choice but to release them into the community. And so these individuals will go back to their communities. And what everybody should be focused on is making sure that they have been treated fairly appropriately while in prison so that they are less of a danger to the community when they come out of jail. That is the larger public interest here. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Great to be here. Thank you. Michael Horowitz is Inspector General at the U.S. Department of Justice. His office finds federal prisons too often isolate prisoners with mental illness. Nucla, Colorado, population 704, is a remote town near the state's western border. It has a way, though, of making global headlines. Nucla draws attention for its unusual socialist beginnings, its role in Cold War uranium production, for its prairie dog shooting, and for a newer requirement that residents own a gun. Senior reporter at The Guardian, Lois Beckett, profiles the town of Nucla and its people as part of that newspaper's series on inequality. And Lois, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Why is tiny and remote Nucla, Colorado, a good place to tell the story of economic inequality in the world, which is what The Guardian uh, is really trying to do with this project. I, When I came to Nucla first, I knew very little about it. Um, I had heard about their gun ordinance, um, which is what really caught the headlines requiring every household to own a gun. Um, but as I talked to uh, the residents there and in Natarita next door, it was so clear to me um, that the gun ordinance, you know, 
for the town folks themselves was like an inside joke. Uh, it was something that they liked and that they were proud of. Um, but what they were most concerned about was the economic future of the town. Um, and with the local coal-fired power plant about to shut down, people were really worried about whether that they could stay in this place that they loved, about um, whether their hometown was going to become a ghost town. And they were also so frustrated that they saw that this closure was linked to broader economic trends, um, but also to advocacy from environmental groups uh, who they felt didn't really understand the science and didn't understand the importance of coal or uranium extraction to people's lives, how good these jobs were uh, and how inadequate the proposed um, substitutions for them was. And I heard a lot about Telluride, uh, which is about an hour and away and is full of millionaire mansions uh, and uh, liberal environmentalists and how frustrated people were about how different life was uh, in Telluride uh, and the interference that they felt that that folks there were having in their way of life um, and that they wanted to sort of put them out of business and drive them out without any option for staying. And so that region is such a study in contrasts economically. You mentioned the gun ordinance. Um, just say a little bit about that. It's why Nucla has has been in the news globally um, more recently. So in, in 2013, um, in the wake of that mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut um, that left 20 children dead, states across the country were moving towards stricter gun control laws. Those were being debated in Washington, um, laws passed in Denver, including limiting the size of ammunition magazines. Um, and this really frustrated a lot of gun owners who felt that guns were being under attack, being blamed for something that wasn't really a gun problem, and that lots of laws were being passed that were maybe well-meaning. Um, Um, but wouldn't help and would just be an inconvenience to the law abiding. And so Richard Craig, um, who was a town board member in Nucla, uh, heard about another town in Georgia that had passed a gun ordinance a couple decades ago. And he loved the idea. And so he brought it up at a board meeting and he told me it was a little bit of a joke at first, this idea to require every household to own a gun. And then, you know, people liked it. He said, "Uh oh, and and it happened. And, you know, people in town will still uh, uh, wear wear T-shirts with this embroidered slogan that says something like, uh, darn right, I've got a gun. I'm from Nucleic, Colorado. But it started as a very different place. I want to talk about its its unusual history. Uh, How are the town's beginnings rooted in a ditch and a bunch of people calling each other comrade? So this was so amazing is how current Nucleus history feels. Um, in 1893, there was an economic crisis, a financial crisis across the United States. Um, unemployment spiked to, to 10 or even 25 percent uh, different numbers. Um, people were homeless. People were out of work. Um, and there was tremendous frustration that the, uh, you know, the economic system wasn't working for so many people. Um, and a group of uh, idealists in Denver got together and said, capitalism is broken and we want to build a different kind of society a cooperative society. So they got the idea that they would get a piece of land and, and you know, build a cooperative society on it. Um, and the land that was left was, you know, dry, essentially. And so they thought, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to find a, a bad piece of land that no one else has claimed under the Homesteading Act. And we're going to dig uh, an irrigation ditch and water that land and turn it into a place that we can build our city on. Um, and they had people buy into this cooperative project for $100 and the work of their hands laboring and digging this ditch. Um, and so they built an 18-mile irrigation ditch um, running downhill uh, from the San Miguel to water this area. And it took them 
almost 10 years to build and was very difficult. And they ran out of food a lot of times. All the local legends are that, you know, there was one piece of bacon that was passed from kitchen to kitchen to flavor like five or six different pots of beans. And no one thought that they could do it. No one thought you could build a ditch collaboratively. And they did. Um, And that ditch is still... um, running and still providing water to the town of Nukla is still owned co- uh, cooperatively and some of the best water rights in the area. Where does the name Nukla come from? It was uh, from the word nucleus, this idea that the town would be um, the nucleus of the surrounding area. Uh, and actually, I, I looked it up, and apparently when they named it, it the, the nucleus of the atom hadn't even been discovered yet. Um, and it, it's a strange foreshadowing of the town's hist- uh, future uh, at that point, which would be so bound up with, with uranium and with the atomic age. That's right, because for a long time, Nucla thrived on uranium mining. Uh, the uranium for the Manhattan Project, that World War II undertaking that produced the first nuclear weapons, was mined near Nucla. Fascinating that that is not the provenance of its name, though. I want to note that Nucla in Montrose County um, uh, is really uh, an area that largely supported President Trump. I mean, he got nearly 70 percent of the vote in Montrose County. But did you find remnants of the more socialist attitudes in in Nucla's current residence? Yeah. I mean, I asked them about that. I said, you know, by most people's labels, this would be a conservative place. And yet you were founded by socialists. You know, how do you how do you square that? Um, And what a lot of them said was basically that they felt they hadn't changed all that much over 100 years, that the labels had changed. Um, uh, That one of the president of the local historical society said, you know, maybe this cooperative socialism, this sort of communal approach was closer to conservatism than we would realize with its emphasis on independence and self-sufficiency with the distrust of big government and, and big corporations and big bosses, people wanting to do things themselves. They felt that really hadn't changed. And that simple political labels simply don't often fit people. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with senior reporter at The Guardian newspaper, Lois Beckett, who recently profiled the town of Nucla, Colorado, as a part of the publication series on economic inequality. And I want to go back to Nucla's heyday uh, in uranium production. What what remains from that era? It was. It's just astonishing that if you um, drive along the highway towards Nukla, you will pass a place where a lot of the people in town grew up, um, and there's there's nothing there. The whole town of Yerevan um, was this incredible white picket fence company town for uranium miners. Um, and for the, the people who grew up there, who many of them still live in Nucla and Natarita, I mean, it was the dream town. It was the American dream that you had a house with low rent and the moms could stay at home and the dads all had work and all the kids played together and skated together and rode their bikes and went swimming in the town pool or played on the town tennis courts. Uh, the company screened movies. Um, uh, one woman who grew up there said she didn't remember there being any law enforcement there. If you got in trouble, you and your parents would be pulled up before the company bosses. And that was scary enough. Um, So it was just this sort of dream place, this perfect American childhood. um, And it was contaminated with uranium. um, And in the 80s, it was uh, shredded and raised and buried in a concrete pit and covered over. And now there's nothing there. Yes, we think of shredding as something you do with paper. This was the shredding of an entire town. Everything down to the Coke glasses from the drugstore, down to like little bolts that were there. Everything, everything was put in the pit. Is there hope in Nucla? And if there is, where where does it rest? 
So there are a lot of local leaders who are working on trying to find the next model of economic development. Um, the uh, Nucla and Natarita put a, uh, together the West End Economic Development Corporation, which has a little office in Natarita, and they're trying to attract tech businesses there. They have one already because the um, town has really good internet access, high-speed internet access, and it's totally beautiful. So there's one question, you know, can you get more tech companies who want to save on overhead and people who like that outdoor lifestyle and can do their work um, from this tiny place? There's questions about tourism, trying to open up the local airport to commercial flights. Uh, Maybe some of those rich folks in Telluride might uh, arrive through their airport and drive uh, over rather than going to the Telluride airport. Um, There's questions about hemp cultivation. Um, The local elementary school Um, which had to be sold off because there weren't enough kids to fill it, uh, might be used uh, as a sort of hemp processing factory, which would also provide jobs. Um, So there's a lot of creativity um, and energy there and a lot of enthusiasm for the town. Um, I talked to um, Amy Tooker, who is the head of um, this Economic Development Corporation, um, and she's running that and also uh, opening an outpost for um, tourists and sporting goods on on Main Street in Nucla. She has her federal firearms license, so it'll be possible to order some guns there. Um, so there there were people who were quite optimistic. Um, and a lot of people who did realize that the town is really beautiful and has this incredible history um, that outsiders like me um, may sometimes get more excited about uh, than people who've lived there and take it for granted. And they're trying to find a way um, to leverage that into becoming a little bit more of a destination um, and getting those to- tourist dollars that they, they so desperately need. There has also been the suggestion that farmers in the area get into organic farming and uh, presumably fetch more for their produce. Uh, But that that hasn't necessarily gone over well in Nucla, right? I mean, when I talked to people about that, there was this frustration, this idea, like, is organic farming going to really bring in the forty to $70,000 a year, that solid salary that you want? Um, and there was also just this annoyance at the idea that organic produce would be some new thing. Uh, um, Jane Thompson told me, you know, my grandmother, you know, didn't use any pesticides, grew it all organic, was all huh. local. And she, she didn't think that was a fancy thing. That was just food. That was just her food. Um, And I think there is some frustration um, with the idea that outsiders are reinventing the wheel and presenting it to them as an amazing solution. And, you know, it's it's not. It's just what they've always done. What was it like to be in Nukla? And I guess I want to ask that in particular related to the firearms ordinance. You said that that started as an inside joke, but what is it like to be in a town and, and be an outsider, by the way, from from a big city um, in a town where everyone's packing heat or the head of households are packing heat. Well, you have to understand that I cover gun politics a lot. And so I'm often talking to people who are uh, carrying guns. And it just, I don't even notice it anymore um, because I know that most people who are gun owners, um, you know, they're very responsible about it. And it, they're not, th- they're, it's there in case they need it. But They hope they don't need it. And it's not an issue. It's not something that's going to be brought up. So I felt um, very safe. And I always feel safe. I think if you go to the NRA convention, I have to say it's one of the most relaxing places to be, even as a journalist. The rhetoric is scary, maybe, but uh, the gun owners aren't. Um, But it was really interesting to be in a town so small that, like, Pretty much everybody knew that I was the reporter. It seemed like by the time I got there and in the last couple of days, people would come up to me and say, I know that you're the reporter. I hope you're doing a nice story. It would suggest people for me to talk to, which I have to say I loved. It was um, really helpful. 
uh, and I loved meeting all, uh, everyone. So I w- it was an amazing experience reporting in Nuclear, I have to say. Um, and I'm not the first reporter who spent a lot of time there. Uh, Peter Hessler from The New Yorker has written some amazing stories. I think it's a town that has such an intense and amazing history um, and such you know, charismatic uh, people who live there that it really draws reporters in because they have so much to tell. I know that our own Ben Marcus reported there recently as well and reported um, really the same experience, which is that from almost minute two that he was in town, others knew he was there and it had sort of gone through the grapevine that there was a reporter in town. And very briefly, Lois, what kind of response has the article generated? I haven't heard back a huge amount yet. Some people have said that they liked it. I've also heard that it caused a little bit of an uproar, so I think some people really didn't. Um, So I'm still getting responses back. And, you know, I think it's a real responsibility for a reporter to come in and tell the story of a town to this broader world um, that really impacts it in so many ways. Um, So all I can say is that I tried to do that as well as I could. And I tried to tell the story that I heard in town. Um, It's a luxury as a reporter just to get to go to a place and say, what is your story? Um, I'm pretty sure it's going to be interesting, but you you tell me what it is. I I don't have a preconceived notion. And I was really grateful to get to do that. And and Nucleus Story is a layered one. And I tried to at least tell some of those layers. Lois Beckett, senior reporter for The Guardian newspaper. There's a link to her story about Nucla, Colorado at CPRnews.org. Donald Trump as a candidate came to Denver last year to make peace with state Republicans who largely opposed his nomination. Trump spoke at an influential gathering called the Western Conservative Summit. The president now will not be there this year. The summit's organizer, Jeff Hunt, joins us with a preview of who will attend and with a sense of how some religious conservatives feel about the administration right now. The summit is associated, we should say, with Colorado Christian University. And Jeff, welcome back to the program. Ryan, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You've been quoted as saying elsewhere that there's a lot of restlessness from grassroots conservatives when it comes to President Trump. What do you mean by restlessness? Primarily around Obamacare. So uh, the non-vote that took place last week, there's a lot of concern among grassroots conservatives that uh, we've been working very, very hard to get conservatives elected and into office. Uh, This is the eighth year we've done the Western Conservative Summit. So I've sat through a lot of these. They first said, uh, hey, if we just get the House, we can make some strides to repeal and replace Obamacare. And then it was, if we could just get the Senate, we can make those strides. And then if we just get the executive and uh, with the non-vote that really took place next last week, there's a lot of restlessness among conservatives who want to see action done. For years and years and years, we've heard about opportunity. We want to see uh, these promises delivered on. This has been a theme at the Western Conservative Summit, the, the repeal and replacement of Obamacare. You've heard that year in and year out. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so uh, the big question, we're going to have three U.S. senators, Cory Gardner, uh, Tim Scott, and James Lankford from Oklahoma, as well as three members of Congress that are part of the Freedom Caucus. 
And that's going to be the big question that I think they're going to have to answer. I've told all of them, come with an answer. Are we going to get a repeal and a replacement of Obamacare? Because if you're not able to deliver on that, grassroots conservatives are going to be deeply disappointed. And I'm not sure they're going to want to face that electorate in a few years. To what extent do they place responsibility at the president's feet, at Congress's feet, at any individual member of Congress, McConnell's feet? What do you think? All of the above. And they're going to look towards President Trump to broker a deal. They're going to want to see if he can deliver uh, on his ability to bring these deals together. So I don't think that there's just one aspect that they're placing their kind of blame upon. I think they're looking for leadership from all aspects of of Republicans and conservatives in Washington, D.C. So that's what they're going to have to deliver on. That's going to be the big question at the summit this year. I know that you come at this not only as a conservative, but as a, a, a Christian conservative, mm-hmm. for whom I assume compassion is an important element. And there are some who look at the repeal of Obamacare and the early plans that came out of the House and the Senate and look at the number of people who might be uninsured, according to the Congressional Budget Office, mm-hmm. who might be kicked off a program like Medicaid and say, where is the compassion in the repeal and replacement? Will you square those for me? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great question, Ryan. So we support uh, the current legislation that would uh, allow uh, people to to, uh, to keep them from losing their pre-existing insurance because of having a pre-existing condition. So um, we want to make sure that people that do have pre-existing conditions are protected. I'll give you a great example. My daughter was born premature. Um, that is considered a pre-existing condition in um, in health insurance, and so her premature um, it, her pre-existing condition. Yeah, it's considered uh, oh, just I being see. born premature is considered a pre-existing condition condition in uh, under health insurance. Okay, so uh, I, I not only have a personal stake in that, but I think that's the right thing to do. I think it's right to protect people who have pre-existing conditions and make sure that um, they're protected so that insurance companies can't drop them. And so that's something to uh, to keep. Uh, through the repeal and replace process. But the challenge we have with Medicaid expansion is that it's um, actually, I think, harming everybody because the way Medicaid works is um, it, it, it drives up the cost because typically Medicaid reimbursements to doctors are at a lower cost. So the way doctors will um, subsidize that is by to increase the cost on everybody else that has uh, uh, health insurance. And so the challenge is with Medicaid expansion is that you're actually driving the cost up on everybody else through there. So I think that Republicans will strike a balance where uh, they want to protect the most vulnerable, uh, but we don't want to continue to increase entitlement spending to the point where it increases costs on everybody. I don't want to make this entirely about health care, but there are obviously those who'd push back against covering those with pre-existing conditions and not at the same time mandating insurance, the individual mandate, mm-hmm. that it's it's hard to cover uh, pre-existing conditions if the pool of, of insured people is is sicker and and healthy people don't seek insurance. But let, let's move on um, to more about the Western Conservative Summit. So uh, what talk do you think there will be of what the administration has done right by conservatives? Yeah, great question. So uh, I think grassroots conservatives have found a lot to cheer about with regards to the first six months of President Trump's 
uh, tenure. So top of the list. Uh, number one, uh, protecting religious freedom. The work he's done there to protect religious freedom. I'd say equally up there, maybe even above number one, is the appointment of Neil Gorsuch. So uh, Colorado's own son, and at one point an intern for our former president Bill Armstrong. So uh, we're the big, president of Colorado Christian University. Yeah, former president. Yeah, 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 he passed away last year. Indeed. And uh, uh, former two-term U.S. senator. But Neil Gorsuch is the great kind of son of Colorado and a good originalist when it comes to the Constitution. So we're very proud of that. Uh, the defunding of Planned Parenthood, uh, hopefully what's going to come out of um, this health care bill, but the allowance of states to, to defund Planned Parenthood if they would like is another big win. Um, so, And then immigration, uh, victories against ISIS and, and what's happening there. So I think there's a lot uh, of con- that conservatives can cheer and that they're very proud of the president on. But Obamacare was a promise delivered for seven years, and we want to see that actually come to fruition. So I think the only cabinet member from the Trump administration who will be at the summit is uh, Zinke, the interior secretary. Um, What do you make of the president not attending? I mean, obviously, he was a candidate last year. There was the inherent desire to get in front of audiences. Uh, But what what do you make of it? Well, we're deeply disappointed. So uh, Donald Trump was the number one top rated speaker last year. That gives you a good sense of where grassroots conservatives are. They love the guy. So we were hoping to bring him back. And in fact, when we initially started out with the planning of the summit, we wanted to highlight the conservative accomplishments of a lot of the administration. But um, as we got closer and closer, we realized that a number of them weren't able to make it out. And we don't know the reasons. Uh, We got the standard kind of, you know, we're just unable to with the schedule. But I think it's a a big missed opportunity. So the president really hasn't been to the western part of the country since he's been president. The closest he's been is Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which is about 100 miles west of the Mississippi. But that's it. You think about California, you think about Oregon, Washington, Montana, Colorado, all these important states, um, literally half the country the president hasn't visited. And I've been very straightforward. I, I don't like the fact that that's, that's occurred. You know, he's been to Italy, he's been to Germany, he's been to the US Open, he's been to Saudi Arabia, but he hasn't been to the western region. Now, I think uh, Secretary Zinke is a a great surrogate for the president's policies. He's a Westerner from Montana, uh, first Navy SEAL to be a a member of Congress. And uh, he gets the conservative Western issues on energy, on land use, all those things that we're debating right now. Uh, And so I think he's a a great uh, surrogate for the president and the president's policies. But I I think that the president and the cabinet missed a great opportunity to to connect with grassroots conservatives in the West. So there is another election that's already begun, and it's the race for governor of Colorado. Uh, I know that there will be a debate among Republican gubernatorial candidates in the race so far. You'll hold a straw poll. Uh, Besides that, how how do you think the focus of this year's summit uh, will differ from last year's. Yeah, so the great that's a great point, Ryan. Uh, it'll be f- fun to have all the gubernatorial candidates. It's one of the first venues where we'll have them all there. Yeah, how many? And we have four of them four. coming. So uh, it'll be fun to see where grassroots conservatives are on there. And what one thing I told all the candidates, I said two years ago, there was one U.S. Senate candidate that came to the Western Conservative Summit. His name was Daryl Glenn, and he worked the crowd. He worked, uh, had a booth there. And when he needed grassroots conservatives to come out and support him in the primary, they did. And I think that was a big part of, of his victory. He lost to Michael Bennett? Overall, yeah. But in the, in the, in primary. the primary, he, yeah. was, he, he won decisively. 
So um, the question for conservatives is how do we bring about the cultural reformations that we're really looking at? That's our theme this year is making goodness fashionable. Um, conservatives have been successful in, in politics really probably at a better time than any other uh, moment, right? We have conservatives in, in the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the legislative branch. Um, but uh, we we still need to continue to do our work and to think bigger than just victories at the at the poll. How do we actually bring about the cultural change that we want to see, uh, which is you know traditional family values, the sanctity of life, religious freedom, compassion for the poor, quality education, those types of things that conservatives have always cared deeply about. Those are the conversations I want to have this this weekend. Conversations that could take up another hour of the program. But Jeff Hunt, <laughs> will have to leave it there. Thank you for the preview. Great. Ryan, so great to be with you and grateful for all the good work you do here at Colorado Public Radio. Jeff Hunt leads the Centennial Institute associated with Colorado Christian University. And the Institute sponsors the annual Western Conservative Summit. It starts tomorrow in Denver. <laughs> Let's say you're a silver miner at a time when there's not much demand for silver. What do you do? Well, if you're a man named Joseph Lesher, you mint your own silver coins, hoping people will find them irresistible. This actually happened in the early 1900s. The Secret Service wasn't thrilled at the time. Today, Lesher's octagonal coins are collector's item. Uh, They fetch sometimes as much as $1,000 a pop. Ken Hollenbeck writes about this strange Colorado-specific currency in a new book, and he joins me from Colorado Springs. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Joseph Lesher lived in various places in Colorado, I understand, I think including Victor. What what kind of a guy was he? He was an innovator and uh, obviously somewhat of a merchant. I think about comparing him with today's society where somebody comes up with a new app, and he came up with a new <laughs> idea for silver. And we're having all kinds of new apps, uh, literally daily. And he got this idea to make silver more palatable, uh, more useful, and therefore more productive uh, from the mines. And so he came up with the idea of a coin. But the Secret Service was really tougher in those days than they are now. And so he was smart enough to realize, well, we better make them a different shape. So he made them octagonal, and uh, they were instantly a collector item rather than actually being useful as as the currency. Now, that's interesting. So when you create a currency, if it's too interesting, it doesn't actually circulate because people hold on to it. I thought that it was illegal, right, for anyone but the federal government to create currency. So Joseph Lesher knew that the Secret Service was on his back. And as you say, he took steps to make these subtly different or even not so subtly different from what else was circulating, right? Right. And he referred to them as a referendum dollar so that in effect they weren't currency, but you had the choice uh, to refer the use of these things one way or the other. So he was playing on words, as we often do today, for various things. I think at one point he printed uh, the term currency on them, but with just one R. <laughs> well, and, and the Secret Service, you know, jumped all over him for that, and they seized the dies and took the dies away. And so he got smart and... Uh, create a different wording by referring to them as referendum dollars. And that that did the trick. They, they didn't like it, but they left him alone pretty much after that. 
this currency was struck, created in Denver. Uh, you say that the coins were octagonal. I think that you own to this day, two of them. And, and they, they weren't good just anywhere, Ken. He had exclusive agreements with stores in Victor, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, Grand Junction, and your... Yeah, Holdridge, Holdridge, Nebraska as well. Yes, that's right. They, they That's had, the only one that's really out of state. They saw that he was a clever merchant and uh, he, the, he did enough merchandising uh, where they just became instant collector hits. What was in it for the stores that signed up to use this currency? I mean, it seems to me you just want to take dollars. Well, they could stamp their name on them, and in a couple of places, uh, Bumstead and Slusher, they actually printed that in the in the die of the coin, and so it was good advertising. And you could uh, use those and bring them back as as useful items, which they didn't really come back. People just kept them as souvenirs, but it was great advertising. For what were essentially dry goods stores. And you mentioned the store in Nebraska that took these lesser dollars, which I think were actually right. worth like a dollar twenty-five. And the owner of this store, John E. Nelson, had many other tricks up his sleeve to bring in clients beyond oh. the lesser dollar. You write about some of his stranger uh, marketing ploys. Will you give us some examples? Oh, he had one that was a great one. He had a, a contest where people could go out into the hinterlands and the farms uh, in the area and would have wagons, hay, hay wagons, like a hayride. And the people that brought in the most ladies to shop at his store got a significant prize. And so he had various hay wagons full of ladies coming in to buy things at his store. And I forget what the top one was, but somebody had like 35 or 40 ladies on this hay wagon. And so they won the top prize. But the guy was very clever in the way he advertised. And this, again, was in Nebraska. You write about, yes, these hay rack loads of women. And this was just another ploy besides this strange currency to bring customers to the store. So back to these coins themselves. As I said, you have two of them. Is it possible that there's like a stash of lesser dollars out there? I think rumors about this abound. Oh, yeah. There's there's several rumors. And when I first came to work at the American Numismatic Association back in 78, 77, 78, there was a guy came in the store and he claimed he had a cigar can or a, a coffee can full of these lesser dollars. And I think he was just jerking my chain because he never came in when I was there. <laughs> and he always had an excuse and drove me nuts because, oh, how I wanted to get those lesser dollars. But uh, there's just, you know, there's several rumors that there's buried a, a, a can or more up in the Victor area. Several people have passed away uh, who presumably had some of these things, and they've gone through their house and their basement with metal detectors and have never been able to find them. But there's always hope. It's like pulling a slot machine handle after you put the quarter in. You (laughs) hope that it's going to hit the big one and and never happens. Of course you would use a coin metaphor there, Ken. I I want to say that the American Numismatic Association is based in Colorado Springs, and in fact, the the Money Museum, which is basically a national coin museum, is there in the Springs. But I want to wrap up by um, 
talking about something else you collect, not just coins and not just these lesser dollars, but you have an extensive collection of credit cards, and the earliest one might surprise people. Yes, I started collecting credit cards back in about the 1950s, late 1950s. Why, I don't know, but they're a form of money. And my earliest credit card is actually dated 1884. A lot of people won't realize, wow, they're that old? Well, it was for collecting or charging collect Western Union telegrams. And so you had to have good credit in order to get a credit card in those days. And they just have been developing ever since then. And I have probably about 15,000, all of which are expired, incidentally. And I have a few of my own, of course, and I guard those carefully. Yes, I imagine. I'm not going to ask you for the number. Ken, thank you for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Ken Hollenbeck is co-author of the new book, Forgotten Colorado Silver, Joseph Lesher's Defiant Coins. And you can see what those strange octagonal coins look like that circulated in the early 1900s at cprnews.org. That's Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to Michelle Fulcher and Michael Hughes. Matt hers as well. We're glad you could spend time with us. This is CPR News. <laughs>